Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, we're in this uh, Epiphany sermon series. We're actually in the thick of it. This is week three. And one thing we've been saying each week is to have an epiphany is just to realize the truth about something. And so throughout the New Testament, what's happening over and over again is people are realizing the truth about Jesus in particular. Uh, so they're coming to grasp who he is. They're starting to understand what he does. And maybe most of all, they're beginning to realize the value or the worth. Or you could even say they're beginning to realize the glory of it all. Uh, so it's this life-changing realization that they're having. And so the question we've been asking through the sermon series is, how does that happen? It's because if we want this to be not just something people in the Bible experienced, but also something that we ourselves experience, it's good to know how it happens. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at the epiphany of the disciples, is what we're calling it. And by, dis by disciples, I just mean the first 12 followers of Jesus. If you remember this, uh, Jesus originally called just 12 men in particular to be his followers. And that word disciple, it was kind of a common word back there. It essentially means you're going to become someone's apprentice. Uh, you're going to learn from that person. Uh, in fact, we get the word discipline from disciple, and so the 12 disciples were the first disciplined apprentices to Jesus. And so we're going to look at how they came to realize the truth about Jesus. Uh, if we go to the passage, it's kind of a simple passage, right? All that happens is Jesus sees Simon it's actually Peter. He later calls him Peter. Uh, so it's Simon. Simon has a brother named Andrew. Andrew's there with him. And then it's James and John. They're brothers too. They're sons of Zebedee is what it says. They're all out there fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And what Jesus does is he just calls out to them. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so immediately it says, no hesitation on their part, all four of them get out of their boats and start following Jesus. Now, if you keep reading the Gospels, if you kind of go through it, this is right, right at the beginning that we're reading today, but if you keep going through it, what you see is it's precisely in following Jesus that they begin to realize who he is. In other words, it's, actually, it's by actually following him that they, become, that they start to understand him. Uh, and so the question that you've got to ask about that is, what does it even mean to follow Jesus? Not exactly clear, right? Uh, we kind of throw that phrase around a lot in the church that we're called to follow Jesus, and yet, what does that even mean? Uh, if you go through the Gospels, I think there are a number of things 
that it means. And I think you can distill all those things down to three. And so I just want to go through each of them, uh, each of the three. And I think as we do, we'll start, we'll start to see why following Jesus can actually open your eyes to the truth about him. Uh, so to start with the first thing, for the disciples, one of the most fundamental aspects of following Jesus is they were called to walk in his ways. Uh, in other words, follow Jesus means live the kind of life that he lived, right? You're an apprentice of Jesus. You're learning how to live from him. Now, the thing about that is the life of Christ had this very definite shape to it. He didn't live like everyone else. He was incredibly different, and in particular, I think there were two features or two characteristics that totally set him apart from everyone else. Uh, the, fir the first is he had this unshakable faith about him. What I mean by that unshakable faith, no matter what life threw at him, he never wavered in his faith. He just had this deep and abiding trust in God. So he was not shaken by life's storms. And so maybe one of the best example of it, examples of it, in this one instance, he and the disciples are in a boat together. It's kind of ironic, right? They're calling them out of the boat, then they get in the boat together multiple times. This is from Matthew chapter 8, and what happens is the wind starts picking up. You probably know the story. Uh, the waves are beating against the boat, and so they're starting to take on water. It looks like they're about to sink, and over time, the disciples really start to freak out. Uh, they're losing their minds. And so they look at Jesus assuming he's going to save them. And he's asleep. <laughs> like, wait, what? Uh, so they wake him up and they say, I love, the, they say this. They say, don't you care that we're perishing? In other words, aren't you worried at all? You've got to love his response. He goes, why are you so afraid, O oh, ye of little faith? And they don't respond, but I think if I were them, I would have said, dude, how are you not afraid? <laughs> right? And yet in the midst of life's storms, he was never afraid. And you see, what he was always trying to teach his disciples and what he was always trying to model for them was that you don't need to fear. You just don't. That no matter the circumstances, your God is 100% trustworthy. That no matter the storm, his will for you is still 100% good. That no matter the chaos you face, his power over your life is still 100% sovereign. And so no matter what, you can still be 100% confident. And that was Jesus, 100% confident. He had this unshakable faith. And so when he said, follow me, he wanted his disciples to follow that faith. Uh, the other main thing about his life is he had this incredible love. And so no matter what other people did, he never wavered in his love for them, right? So in this one particular instance, I'm kind of drawing from all over the Gospels. Uh, this is from Luke 9. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, but along the way, he's going to stop in Samaria. It's part of his mission, right? He's not just here to save righteous people. He's here to save the unrighteous as well. And so he's going to Samaria where people tend to live these kind of backwards, self-destructive lives. And yet what happens is before he ever gets there, the Samaritans send out an envoy of sorts. And what they say is they don't really want anything to do with this Jesus. Now he's going to go to Jerusalem. They don't really like that if only because they hate the people in Jerusalem. There's kind of this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And so they just flat out reject the ministry of Jesus. 
And so what the disciples say, remember the first four disciples are getting called in today's passage, they're all there, and what they say is, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah part two, right? Uh, in other words, we're going to pray to God that he would condemn them. We ourselves are going to hate them, and that's because if people hate Jesus, we've got to hate them, right? Right? Jesus? Uh, and what Jesus says is, you do not know what spirit you are of. Meaning you guys still don't get it, do you? You don't have my spirit, you don't think my thoughts, you don't know my heart, and the reason that I know that is you do not have my love. You see, the love of Christ is never dependent on whether people deserve it. Only because no one deserves it. And so when he came, he was always walking in this incredible love, and at the same time, he was always trying to get his disciples to walk in that same incredible love. He even says at one point, the way people will know you're my disciples is by your love. You'll have learned it from me. And so when he says in today's passage, follow me, he is calling them to follow in his love. And to the extent that they do that, their eyes will begin to open. So that's the first thing about following Jesus. To follow him is to walk in his ways, right? So live his kind of life. Uh, it means you live your life with unshakable faith and incredible love. Let's go to the second thing. Uh, so when I was in high school, I went to Canyon High School. And when I was there, they had this incredible cross-country team. It seemed like they were almost always winning CIF championships. It was amazing. Uh, and so as you could imagine, these guys could just flat out run. I mean, just guys, it was guys and girls alike, right? Uh, they could all really run. It was actually really cool. You would see them running around Canyon Country, and whereas for a lot of us, running tends to look really hard, not for them. For them, it looked incredibly easy. In fact, they were so good that they could be thick into a long, hot run, and it would still look almost effortless. And so I distinctly remember seeing that and thinking to myself, that is amazing. I wish that were me. I want to be able to run like that. And yet here was the issue. I was friends with a few of them, and what I noticed is we had totally different lifestyles. For instance, on the weekends, they would get up in the morning, they would go straight to the track. On the weekends, I would get up in the morning and go straight to the couch. Uh, for part of their breakfast, they would have a big bowl of fruit. For all of my breakfast, I would eat a big bowl of fruity pebbles, which are delicious. Pretty sure that's not fruit. Uh, these guys would go out and do tempo runs. If you ever heard of that, it's where you like run harder for a certain period of time. They would do tempo runs to expand their lung capacity. It's brutal. Every summer, they would spend a week in the mountains so they could train in low oxygen. They would almost always eat the right things. Every single one of them would, kept, would keep their weight in check. And so what I'm saying is they would do all these things to become great runners, none of which I really wanted to do. Which is why I played volleyball, by the way. <laughs> uh, and so whereas I wanted their life, right, did not want their lifestyle. And the problem with that is it's precisely the lifestyle that made the life possible. If we go back to the passage, Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, and we were just saying that that means to walk in his ways. Unshakable faith, incredible love, and you see the thing about that is I think a lot of us look at the life of Christ and we think to ourselves, I want that. I want it. I want to live that life. I don't want to be so stressed out. I don't want to be so short-tempered. I really do want to live my life with faith and with love. And yet, there's an issue. 
Namely, if we want to live the life of Christ, we have to adopt, adopt the lifestyle of Christ. You see, there were certain habits that Jesus had that made certain capacities possible. So this is going to sound crazy, but I want you to imagine you are living with Jesus. And that's what the disciples essentially did, right? They live with Jesus. So imagine that you and the Lord of all creation are renting an apartment. And so you wake up in the morning, you come out of your room, and Jesus is just sitting there. You're like, hey man, what are you doing? He's like, ah, nothing, just on social. Did Jesus just take a selfie? Uh, so you guys get home that night, and the first thing he says, ah, oh, man, that was the craziest day ever. You know what I need? I need a huge glass of wine. I'm just going to veg out in front of the TV and get some me time. Who do you think Matt James is going to end up with, huh? Apparently Jesus watches The Bachelor. <laughs> just putting that out there. Uh, so that weekend, you guys are just hanging out. It's been a rough week for Jesus. He's getting accused of all sorts of things that aren't true. In fact, even his own followers are being total knuckleheads. And so that weekend, he just starts venting. Can you believe this guy, Peter? He says the stupidest stuff. Those guys, James and John, they say they want to be bigwigs. Apparently, even their mom's in on it. Like, where did they come off? That Judas guy, I don't know. I just don't trust him. Something about him. And so whenever you're around Jesus, it seems like he is either preoccupied stressed out or talking a bunch of junk about people and so just to put this out there do you think that's how jesus would be no clearly not but you see why are so many of his followers that way i'm just going to suggest one potential reason is whereas we want to walk in his ways We've never really picked up the lifestyle that supports that. You see, when it comes to the life of Christ, behind this unshakable faith and incredible love was a lifestyle that cultivated and supported those things. Uh, so, for example, unshakable faith. Remember, he could be in the middle of a storm, still totally at peace. I don't know about you, I want that kind of life myself. And yet, if you think about it, what did Jesus do when he first got up? He prayed. Prayed. He literally got up earlier than everyone else. You're like, where did Jesus go? We lost him. Uh, he got up earlier. He left so that he could practice fellowship with the Father. What did he do on the weekend? Every weekend, he took an entire day just to rest. They called it the Sabbath, right? So one day every week, he didn't produce anything. He didn't buy anything. He didn't do anything that would be deemed productive. Instead, he just spent the entire day in the worship of God and the fellowship of his people. That is the lifestyle that undergirded his whole life. Or if you think about this incredible love that he had, the people around him were almost always fools, failures, or hypocrites. And yet if you go through the Bible, notice in particular how Jesus uses his tongue. It's fascinating to just read it and think of like, how does Jesus use his tongue? He never speaks of people behind their back. He also never complains how hard his life is. He never uses his tongue for anything but the edification of other people and the glorification of his God. And so one of the reasons he was able to walk with incredible love is he had a lifestyle that supported it. Specifically, the way that he used his tongue. And according to the book of James, the way you use your tongue shapes your heart. Uh, so again, what I'm saying is if we want to live the life of Christ... I think when we look at we want to live the life of Christ, uh, we need to pick up the lifestyle of Christ. 
And so when he says, follow me, it's not just about intending to walk in the ways of Jesus. It is also about adopting the disciplines that support it. Let's go to the third thing. Uh, So far we have said that uh, to follow Jesus means, first of all, you walk in his ways. It means, second of all, you learn his lifestyle. And it means, third of all now, you witness his works. You witness his works. Uh, You see, when Christ came, he did all these different things, and they were always meant to reveal who he is. And so a big part of following me is just watch what I do. If we jump all the way back to the book of Genesis, right when the fall happens, the first thing Adam and Eve do is they hide themselves. Now what it says in the passage is they notice they're naked, they don't want to be seen, and so they run from God and hide who they are. And the thing is, what that's meant to convey is they felt ashamed. Now, so not just guilty. Guilt is the sense that you did something wrong, you feel bad about it. Shame is the sense that there's something wrong with you. You're embarrassed about it. That's Adam and Eve. They just don't want to be seen. It's almost like when you become a teenager and you start doing shady stuff so you hide from your parents. That's the condition of man before God. We are all a bunch of shady teenagers hiding from our father. And so the second God finds them, it's kind of a classic move. They're just about to be found out. And so what Adam goes, he goes, nah, I'm not going to take the blame for this one. This woman whom you gave to me. And so he's just shifting the blame. And so eventually what happens is God pushes them out of the Garden of Eden. And since the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden, getting pushed out means now death is part of life. So just to pause there for a second, what started out as a world with absolutely nothing wrong. So there was no shame. Nothing to hide. Uh, No blame, no disease, no death. There was just none of that. And yet all because of the fall, it all entered in. And it never went away. So you go to the Gospels. When Christ came, he would repeatedly come across people who were suffering the effects of the fall. He'd come across people whose shame was out in the open. So literally, there would be people getting dragged in front of him so that their sin would be totally exposed. In fact, in one particular instance, the woman caught in adultery, if you read the passage, she is literally naked. And so she is just like Adam and Eve. She is totally exposed, totally ashamed, wants nothing else but to hide and not be seen. And yet what does Christ do, right? To witness his works. What does he do? Does he expose her shame? No. Does he pile on the blame? No. Does he point the finger and condemn her for messing up? No. That's what the world does. We see it all the time. But what does Christ do? He covers her with grace. And so you see, when the disciples followed him, they would see him do that over and over again, covering people with grace. At the same time, he was always coming across people who were beset by disease or they were even nearing their death. Again, another cursed result of the fall. And what he would do is he would just take away their disease or he would even deliver them from death. So Lazarus, come out, for instance, and Lazarus, 
comes out. Blind son's birth, receive your sight. The blind man receives his sight. Now pick up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden the paralytic can walk. And so again, the disciples would see this. They're witnesses of his work. They were witnesses. And you see, all his work really was was just reversing the fall. Over and over again, he was, reser- he was reversing what happened in Genesis. And yet, what happened to him? Uh, at a particular point, everything in his ministry kind of unraveled. Uh, Christ gets betrayed by one of his disciples, namely Judas. He gets put on trial, and, uh, and so now, all of a sudden, he's the one getting blamed. And what they do to him is they strip off his clothing, and so now all of a sudden he's the one getting shamed. And so then they hang him up on a cross, and now all of a sudden he's the one who's dying. And so this same Jesus who used to cover people's shame, take away their blame, deliver them from death, is now getting shamed himself. He's getting blamed. He is dying. All of which means he is getting overtaken by everything that he used to take away. And so as he hangs on that cross, he dies the death that had started back at the fall, which means all of his work, all that reversing the fall, which looked amazing at the time, just comes to a really disappointing end. And at this point, I don't think anyone's really asking the question, but just ask it, where are the disciples? Uh, They're the followers of Jesus. And yet they are not following him at all. They're nowhere to be found. In fact, what they're doing instead is they are hiding in fear. And in a sense, it's totally understandable. You see, they were called to follow Jesus, but in this case, following Jesus meant you're probably going to get lumped in with him. You're probably going to get accused. You're definitely going to be outcast. You might even die if you follow Jesus. They knew that. And every single one of them was afraid of it. Uh, So just like Adam and Eve who hide from God in the Garden of Eden, the disciples hide from Jesus as he hangs on the cross. It's like nothing has changed. And yet eventually something did change for the disciples. Uh, That group of 12, it's weird, eventually 11 of the 12 willingly died for their faith years later. And you have to ask, what happened, right? What changed for the disciples that they went from hiding in fear to living in faith? And you see, just one thing happened. They saw him. Uh, More specifically, he found them. He had risen from the dead. They were still hiding in fear, and so he literally sought them out and found them. And when he found them, what he did is he did not blame them. It's a fascinating passage if you read it. He didn't blame them for being weak and abandoning him. He didn't shame them for being self-serving and afraid. Instead, he covered them with the same grace that he had covered all the other sinners he had come across. And in that instance, they started to realize it. They were much more sinful than they had ever imagined. But at the same time, they were far more loved than they ever thought possible. In other words, the cross started making sense. That that was not the end of Jesus' work. 
It was, in fact, the fulfillment of his work. That on the cross, that wasn't the fall overtaking him. That was him overtaking the fall. That the reason he was blamed, shamed, and died is those are all the things that we struggle with. And so what they realized was everything weak and shameful in them was forgiven. Everything hard and evil in their life was overcome. Everything that happened at the fall was no longer in effect for them. And so now instead of hiding in fear, they could go out and they could live his life. Why? Because they had witnessed his work. And when you witness the work of Christ on the cross for you, everything changes. In particular, unshakable faith becomes realistic. Because now you have seen how faithful God is. Incredible love becomes natural. Because now you have seen the love that God has for you. And so that was the epiphany of the disciples. After which they truly became fishers of men. Uh, So the question to ask ourselves is, are we also disciples? Are we disciples? Meaning, do we walk in his ways? And are we learning his lifestyle? Uh, Not because we're a bunch of spiritual superstars, uh, but because we have witnessed his work for us. Now, if you want to follow him, I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father God, you have revealed yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you are a God who is absolutely faithful, incredibly good, totally sovereign. And so, Father, when you call us to follow, there is no reason we should hedge or hesitate or anything like that. And yet, for the most part, Lord God, you know it, we still do. And so we do pray this morning that, first of all, you would forgive us for that. Uh, but second of all, that you would open our eyes to what, right, what Christ really came to bring. That in him is not our dismay but our freedom. And so to follow him is not great folly, but true wisdom. Oh, that we would just see that, Lord God. Help us to see it. Pray that you would make it so in Jesus' name. Amen.